What's up, guys? It's your girl, Ginger, the true crime queen. I'm reminding you now that listener discretion is always advised. The dark nature of this show is not suitable for young ears or those who are sensitive to graphic material. But without further ado, let's freaking get it. Welcome back, my lovely listeners. Or, of course, if you're new, thanks for giving my podcast a try. Today, I'm going to highlight a case from the Pacific Northwest that has seemingly gone cold over the last 10 years. And with every year that passes, the public, who remembers at least, steadily grows more frustrated at the lack of justice when compared with the growing mountain of red flags the case has clearly left behind along its way. This last November 6th of 2021 marked the 10-year anniversary of the disappearance of two-year-old Sky Metawala from the city of Bellevue, Washington, a city just outside of the Seattle area, basically, with a population of about 122,000 back in 2011. If you're aware of the case, you already know how utterly infuriating the story is, but I believe I found a few underreported details about the case that might be new to you. As far as those of you that don't recognize this name, just sit back and let me tell you about how Washington State has possibly allowed a murderer to walk free. And trigger warnings for this case include allegations of child abuse, as well as a brief mention of suicide. This is technically still an open investigation, so of course I do have information regarding how you can help out at the end. To bring the entire situation of just how this precious little two-year-old boy went missing into context, we sort of need to begin before Sky was born and at the very beginning of his parents' relationship. And it's a bit toxic if I do say so myself. Sky Metawala's mother, Julia Beriakova, was born on March 10th of 1981 and actually immigrated to Washington State with her mother, I believe from Ukraine back in 1994 when she was just 12 years old. Julia later claims in court documents that prior to moving to America, she had a terrible childhood where she was subjected to daily physical abuse, as well as something called electroconvulsive shock therapy. And for what? I'm not exactly sure, but that does not sound good in the least bit. I don't know how true this is either, but I'm not going to doubt it much given what we eventually find out about Julia as the story moves along. Baby Sky's father, on the other hand, Solomon Metawala, was born on April 15th of 1975, and he's said to originate from Pakistan, and I'm unsure of the year he arrived in America exactly. From what I do know, his family was operating a small cafe in the Pioneer Square of Bellevue known as King Street Cafe, which he was working in at this time of his life. Solomon Metawala explains that he and Julia had originally met each other back in 1997, While they both happened to be at a local gas station, they ended up talking, and he invites the high school sophomore to a weekend party, actually. It's a bit cringy here, as he's 21 years old, while she was just 15, maybe going on 16. But it's pretty irrelevant, I suppose, at this point. Regardless of the age difference, Julia did end up attending that party, and she and Solomon began dating pretty exclusively shortly thereafter. Julia eventually started working at the Metawala's Cafe while finishing up her high school classes, and upon graduation, she and Solomon were able to purchase themselves a nice little condo in the Bellevue area together. 
Honestly, things sound great in the beginning of their relationship for the most part. They go jogging together, they're yoga, kickboxing, they're apparently a very active couple. However, you know, new relationships do usually go that way. They do appear to have at least one little incident around their two-year mark in 1999 when the cops were allegedly notified because the couple was said to be, quote, arguing loudly. And this was, again, while at a gas station. Now, gas stations, for some odd reason, seem to be a pretty continuous theme in the story, now that I'm saying it out loud. That's kind of weird, but you'll see what I mean. Anyways, Julia eventually earned her United States citizenship, I believe, sometime in 2001, or about the age of 19. And after about six years of dating, records show that 21-year-old Julia and 27-year-old Solomon would end up getting married on February 10th of 2003. I had read they had a super small wedding in her parents' home, as it was apparently more or less an effort to keep Solomon from getting deported back to Pakistan. But again, I don't know if that little detail is true or not, and again, it doesn't really matter anymore, right? Shortly after their marriage, I believe Solomon then converted from Islam, I think it would be, over to Christianity. And really has, ever since, been an active part of his church community in the parishioners at City Church in the Kirkland area. Julia will later indicate that when Solomon switched religions, his family apparently blamed her and were really upset by it, and it sort of became a point of contention between the two families. On top of that, business at the King Street Cafe had suddenly gotten slower after another competitor deli had moved in right next door to their cafe's location. As time goes by, Julia and Solomon's relationship grows a little bit more complicated, with their own financial issues starting to arise. One good thing, though, that they could celebrate would be the birth of their first child together, a daughter born in December of 2006, I believe, who I'm only going to be referring to as M for privacy reasons, because they're still pretty young, actually, and the name really doesn't need to be said. It doesn't need to be out there. Shortly after their daughter was born, and despite business being slow, Solomon and Julia decided to purchase a pretty expensive home in Kirkland, not too far away from Bellevue, while also keeping their Bellevue area condo. I believe they were hoping to rent out the condo for extra income, but instead they quickly fell behind on both mortgages and began accruing a lot of debt in a short amount of time, adding to the stress of it all, of course. Things between Julia, Solomon, and now Baby M were getting pretty overwhelming at one point in late 2009 when they started facing foreclosure on both of their properties and were eventually forced to give up their $860,000 home in Kirkland and move back into the much smaller Bellevue area condo. Just as they're learning they're going to be welcoming their second child together before the year is over. About the same time, it sounds like Julia was beginning to struggle a little bit mentally, too. According to Solomon, Julia began showing pretty intense signs of postpartum depression, being that their first child was still pretty young and having another already on the way. So Julia was apparently put on antidepressants early into her second pregnancy while trying to deal with everything else. And from what I understand, Julia did not really like taking medications because... A, she either felt like she didn't need them, or B, she was uncomfortable taking them while being pregnant, which is understandable. She also reportedly has a hard time trusting doctors given her childhood in Ukraine, though, which, again, if you believe her, that also seems understandable. 
Unfortunately, too, Julia is also struggling with another issue that seems wasn't being addressed until it became almost too big to handle by themselves. I'm not sure if this has always been something for Julia either, or maybe it just blew out of proportion after having a baby, but Julia reportedly suffers from a very severe case of obsessive-compulsive disorder. And we aren't talking, like, your stereotypical germaphobe here, like, aha, oh yeah, I have to have all my things straight because I'm just OCD. No, this is very much beyond just wanting to be neat and tidy. This is almost like life-crippling tendencies. Not only does Julia attempt to mop and vacuum their entire living space every single day, of course in perfect lines, but every single inch of a room has to be scrubbed on the daily for Julia to feel comfortable in her house. And this would literally take hours of her energy and time every single day. On June 29th of 2009, their condo's property manager had to issue them a violation of noise ordinances as their closest neighbors had been disturbed by the sounds of her constant vacuuming coming from the condo as late as 11 p.m. This too had apparently been their third violation of it, no less, and it also came with a $300 fee, which wasn't making their financial situation any better either. From my understanding, When this all began, Solomon had tried to help Julia, figuring, you know, she's just super particular about things, and he would comply with her request to, like, reduce her triggers to have to clean things. However, it honestly just sounds like it got worse over time. Solomon later explains that Julia's condition had at one point gotten so bad, she wouldn't let Solomon or herself sleep in the bed anymore and actually preferred that everyone sleep on the home's floor so that the bed's blankets and the sheets wouldn't then get tainted. And eventually these appeasements from Solomon began to start affecting their children as well. And Solomon begins falling into this like metaphorical hole and explains that living with Julia and her disorder at this point had become incredibly difficult. After months of like 12-hour cleaning shifts becoming a daily set routine for Julia, basically an unpaid job in her own home, Solomon would slowly become the primary parent to their daughter, with him being the one to make sure that she is being properly cared for on top of working full-time in his family's cafe. Because Julia is so focused on cleaning that she wouldn't be able to stop herself and make sure to feed their daughter or herself for that matter. Solomon says Julia got so bad with her need to have things clean that she would eventually progress to having food even being inside the home altogether because of the mess it would create. So Solomon had to begin taking their toddler and Julia out of the house just for them to eat, whether it was back to the cafe, out to another restaurant, or literally just having to eat out on their backyard patio. I mean, and you guys, there's a lot of rainy days in Bellevue. Not to mention, there is soon another mouth to feed with the second child still on the way. Julia gives birth to their son, Sky Elijah Metawala, on September 2nd of 2009. Their daughter, M would be almost three years old at this point, and trust me, trust me personally, a newborn and a toddler is a fucking handful. Even with two mentally stable parents, never mind how messy things could get, and do get. But... What happens next has never made much sense to me or anyone else who knows about this case. When baby Sky was just three months old, 
it was found that both Julia and Solomon would be charged with reckless endangerment after apparently deciding to leave their newborn son alone inside their Cadillac Escalade while they shopped inside a Redmond area Target store. This happened in the middle of winter in the Pacific Northwest on a 27 degree day or a negative 2.7 degrees Celsius for anyone not listening from the U.S. Hey. Apparently, it was several of the other customers outside of the store who had luckily happened to notice that Baby Sky was inside the car alone and immediately notified the local police. When they arrived, it was requested that the employees of Target then page the owners of the Escalade to the front of the store, where Julia and Solomon reportedly claimed to only be shopping for 20 to 25 minutes, when actual store surveillance cameras confirmed it was more like 55 minutes to an hour. I'm gonna let God fix it, because if I fix it, I'm going to jail. Now, I've heard differing accounts as to whether their daughter was inside the store with them or if she was even there at all, but she was not reportedly left inside the car with baby Skye, he was absolutely alone. And I, I have no understanding of why. Why would this ever be okay? Especially if there's two children and two parents. However, no excuse they had would probably ever be good enough. And Julia and Solomon were then slapped with a CPS investigation rather quickly. I read that between this late 2009 and late 2010, the Washington State Child Protective Services had visited the family as many as six times. For the reckless endangerment charges, though, both Julia and Solomon were then ordered to one-year probation, 40 hours of community service, and they both had to take and complete a 10-week-long parenting class before their case with CPS would end up being fully dismissed the following year. However, all these things, the financial issues, the OCD, and its issues, fighting this CPS case, another round of postpartum depression, and maybe any other relationship problems that Solomon and Julia might have been having seem to really be taking a toll on Julia's mental health, and she begins saying some pretty disturbing things. Solomon detailed that on Julia's 29th birthday, March 10th of 2010, she had began sending him a bunch of text messages while he was working at the cafe, with messages that read, quote, please, Please, I'm begging with my whole heart, help me find a peaceful way to die. I cannot live another day and cause you and M and Sky any more suffering. I'm dead inside anyway and have been dead for a long time. You will not miss me at all. And M and Sky have the best daddy in the world, so I know they will be okay. End quote. So when this happened, Sky's father Solomon immediately called the police because Julia was at home alone with the children and he obviously feared that Julia was going to do something drastic. Police later arrived at their condo and Julia admitted to sending the earlier messages and also admitted to feeling suicidal. So she was then taken to the Overlake Hospital for a psychiatric evaluation. However, it seems when she gets all the way there though, she explains to those doctors that she only threatened to commit suicide to, quote, get her husband's attention, end quote. Yeah, that's fucked up, honestly. But it's something we should probably be more worried about and less annoyed with because it's some majorly manipulative type of shit to be dealing with, especially when you have little children involved in the situation. I don't like that and neither does Solomon. So it was then, after 14 long years and two whole-ass kids together, 
Solomon had seemingly had enough and appears to have gone down to the courthouse and filed for a separation from Julia, which is a little different than a divorce per se, but nonetheless the beginning of one, which would also spark quite the custody battle as well. After Julia was evaluated at the Overlake Hospital there in Bellevue, she was then transferred to a behavioral health treatment center known as Navos, which is located in Seattle. Upon her admittance there, Julia was tested and scored based on something called the Global Assessment of Functioning, which uses a numerical scale of 1 to 100 to assess the psychological function of an adult. When she arrived, Julia was found to have a score of 15, which meant that she fell in a category of some danger of hurting herself or others, or there can be issues of gross impairment in communication with someone who scores around 15. Upon her release from Navos, her GAF score had risen to a 40, which moved her to a category of, quote, some impairment in reality testing and or major impairment in several areas such as work, school, family relations, judgment, thinking, or mood. Julia was then taken by Solomon and her own brother to the University of Washington's Medical Center to address the spousal duress and the impairments that she was found to be having from Navos. This was an action her brother would later regret doing, from what I understand, as it had a possible effect on her upcoming custody battle. Solomon initially claimed in his separation that Julia was mentally unstable and it's so severe it was actually keeping her from properly caring for their children, and that they were possibly even in danger when and if left in her custody. To support these claims, Solomon stated in court documents, quote, I'm not exaggerating when I state under oath that Julia cared more about cleaning a countertop than she did about feeding our daughter, end quote. On top of that, he alluded to her possibly even hurting the children, saying, quote, She'd recently begun to have dreams about killing our children, even telling me of her dreams about strangling our youngest child. This became very scary, and I knew it was time I had to do something, end quote. And thank God he did, because that's not the kind of bluff you want to be calling, you know? However, while Julia is away for treatment, the foreclosure situation on her and Solomon's condo finally came to a head, and Solomon would have to relocate himself along with the children over to his mother's home for the time being. On June 10th of 2010, Solomon served papers to Julia concerning the custody of the kids and the final dissolution to their marriage. And immediately following this filing, Julia seems to have fired right back, claiming that Solomon was actually the abusive one in their relationship, both physically and emotionally, to her as well as the children. Julia also claimed she feared for her children's safety. She wrote in court documents that Solomon would physically beat the children with wooden spoons and has physically laid hands on her on three separate past occasions. According to Julia, their first domestic incident occurred in the days following their reckless endangerment citations for leaving three-month-old Skye in the car. Julia alleges Solomon threw her to the floor for letting Skye sleep too late into the day. Julia says, quote, He became furious like I have never seen him before. He grabbed me by my hair in front of our three-and-a-half-year-old daughter. He dragged me into our hallway, threw me down on the floor, and threw me against a decorative column we have in the entrance of our home. He continued to assault me with his feet by kicking me 
and then he took out his car keys and continued to scratch me in any area he could. The most, most recent had been his threats to kill me if I say anything against him or in any way I proceed with action of seeking custody of our two small children. And Solomon is doing the same thing to our small children that he did to me, physically abuse them and try to control them. I live in constant fear for my life and my children's lives, end quote. She had also mentioned at one point that he had been ordering her to go out and live on the street and work as a prostitute, which is sort of laughable later down the timeline, honestly, you'll see why. Solomon denies all these accusations of abuse, explaining that it was actually Julia herself who was raised with the spoon beatings, and it's how she chooses to discipline their children. And she's just saying all these things in an attempt to win custody as a way to hurt him for divorcing her, basically, or at least that's according to him. Paperwork later shows that one of the clinical psychologists in Seattle who had previously evaluated Julia noted that she did, in fact, seem to be dealing with a, quote, severe form of obsessive compulsive disorder. But he did not believe that that should interfere with her ability to be a compassionate and effective parent to her children. So Julia's OCD is confirmed, but believed to not be an issue in her ability to parent either Little Sky or M. And a ongoing CPS investigation into Solomon's allegations of Julia neglecting to properly care for the children was then dropped by August of 2010. That following month, she then declared to the courts that she didn't suffer from OCD at all, not even a little bit, and never has, while combining it with a different letter from one of her prior psychologists that said, quote, Julia is an intense young woman whose only interest is to provide a good life for her two children. And with that, by late September of 2010, Washington State had inevitably ended up ruling in Julia's favor for custody of both the children. Julia then celebrated on her Facebook page by saying, quote, Justice was served today. I am the primary parent to my babies. Hallelujah. My babies are happy and I am happy. Thank you, Veronica Freitas. I believe the children were at that point able to only have supervised visits with their father until December of 2010 when Julia would apparently file another protection order and this time alleged that Solomon had now sexually abused their three-year-old daughter. A CPS would begin another investigation into those claims, but they were soon dropped as Solomon hadn't even had an opportunity to be alone with his children for months by that point. However, the protection order she had previously requested was still granted and Solomon was then not allowed to see his children at all at any point between December of 2010 and November of 2011 when their custody agreement was to be reviewed. So for an entire year, basically, Solomon had to put his faith literally back into God that Julia was actively caring for their two small children in the best ways that she could as he's not allowed to have contact with them in any way, shape, or form. So he missed out on both his daughter's fourth birthday as well as Little Sky's second birthday during this what I'm sure was a very long year for Solomon. So we fast forward a whole year and the mediation concerning their custody arrangements between Julia and Solomon would next take place on November 2nd of 2011 
where they would both meet with their attorneys at the courthouse for a hearing that literally dragged on for almost 13 hours before they were able to meet a tentative agreement on some sort of division of custody that would finally allow Solomon the rights to see his children again. Hour after hour, offer after offer was presented and finally they both agreed on Julia being the primary parent while Solomon would now be allowed to have the children every Wednesday and Saturday. Unfortunately, it wasn't even a full 24 hours later until Julia was said to be calling up Solomon and attempting to back out of their newest custody agreement. When Solomon metaphorically said, get fucked, she then offered to free him of his $2,000 a month child support payments if she could just take the children away to Scottsdale, Arizona, randomly. When that also doesn't fly with Solomon, Julia then calls the courts back and expresses to them that she no longer wants Solomon to see the children. Her lawyer said, quote, Julia insisted that everyone at that mediation session had been against her and the settlement was unfair, end quote. Basically, Julia claimed that she felt pressured into the agreement and felt uncomfortable continuing to refuse any more offers. From what I can tell, nothing about their agreement changed, not right away anyways. So regardless if Julia liked it or not, really, Solomon was legally entitled to see his son Skye and his daughter M the following Wednesday for his first visitation with them in over a year. But unfortunately, that Wednesday has really never come for Solomon. On the early morning of Sunday, November 6th of 2011, just four days after Solomon was granted visitation rights, Julia claims two-year-old Skye woke up feeling sick, so she packed both the children up into the car that she had been borrowing from her brother. Julia and the kids reportedly left her Redmond area apartment and began heading to the Overlake Hospital which would have been about 10 minutes away in regular traffic, but it's pretty early on a Sunday morning. While on the way to the hospital, Julia claims she begins experiencing some unspecified car trouble and was forced to pull off on the side of a semi-busy road in Bellevue. This area is known as 112th Avenue Northeast. Now, it's reportedly at this point that Julia decides she needs to walk up the road to the nearest gas station, again, with the gas stations. So Julia proceeds to get the four-year-old daughter M out of the car, but for no whatever seemingly good reason at all, she opted to leave her two-year-old son, Skye, strapped into his car seat while she and M walk about a mile down the road to a Chevron gas station on Bellevue Way. And that looks like a Pretty nice 52-minute walk through a very upscale neighborhood, according to Google Maps. When Julia and her daughter arrived at the Northtown area Chevron, Julia reportedly asked the attendants there at the gas station for a gas can, which they did not have available, so Julia then used the public payphone there to call a friend of hers named Shelby for a ride. So Shelby soon arrives at the gas station and then proceeds to bring both Julia and her daughter M back to where Julia had left her brother's car and, of course, only to find that baby Sky is no longer inside the car seat or even in the car for that matter. By this time, it's 9.50 a.m. and the call is placed to the Bellevue Police Department reporting two-year-old Sky Metawalla as missing. 
According to the Bellevue police, it was actually Julia's friend Shelby who had notified the police, who were quickly dispatched over to an area just off Interstate 405 between the 2400 block and the 2600 block of 112th Avenue Northeast. God damn, that was a mouthful. Julia informs the first arriving officers that she had left her son, Skye, strapped inside the car seat and had only been gone for about an hour when she returned to find him no longer in the car. After confirming there is no sign of any child in the car or near it, and from first glance, the car doesn't really appear to have been forcibly entered with having no broken windows or obviously Jimmy door handles, perhaps Skye somehow got out of the car and was walking around. And according to Solomon, Skye was able to walk at this age. In the meantime, police are double-checking that little Skye isn't with the other parent, likely because they see the pending divorce situation between Julia and Solomon. So by 10.30, three Bellevue police officers are interrupting Solomon at his home, who is getting ready for his weekly Sunday church session when he is utterly sucker-punched with the gut-wrenching news that his son is missing, the son he hasn't seen in a year. Solomon quickly explained that he hadn't been allowed to see the children for nearly a year because of the custody battle that he and Julia were currently going through, and admitted that he couldn't believe Julia would have left Skye in the car again, especially after all the shit they had to deal with years back with the Target incident. However, Solomon can't really offer the police much more information besides wondering or questioning why Julia would even be in this part of town when she lives in Redmond, or why she would choose to visit the Overlake Hospital and not one that was closer to her home. And with that, the real search for Baby Sky officially begins. Bellevue police then canvassed the entire 20-block radius surrounding where Julia had parked her brother's car off of 112th Avenue. The foot search included going door-to-door in the nearby wooded neighborhood, looking into their garages, searching small residential parks, and even employing the use of tracking dogs until well after nightfall. By 9 p.m., the officers had found literally nothing to indicate that a child had somehow wandered off in the area, and no scent of Skye was ever found by the bloodhounds beyond the vicinity of the car. The initial foot search for Skye was so thorough, Bellevue police felt pretty adamant that little Skye was not in that area and really could have possibly been taken from the car. At this point, Skye is very much considered a missing and endangered person, but his situation does not meet the technical criteria for an Amber Alert, being that there's no suspect or description of an abductor's car, and that's for the state of Washington, at least. And only police or news coverage and word of mouth, basically, is being used to alert the general public of Sky's disappearance. Bellevue police would then begin urging anyone who happened to be in the area of 112th and Northeast 24th between the early morning hours of 7 and 10 a.m., to immediately notify police with any information they might have concerning the car, the child, or anything related to the two. In the meantime, when Skye was not quickly recovered in the area near the car, his mother Julia is of course brought back down to the police station for a little more information on how this could have happened. Interestingly, or maybe conveniently, I don't know what to say, but Julia was found not to only have forgotten her cell phone that day, but also forgot her purse and her wallet, 
with any identification, even though she claimed the original plan that day was to take Sky over to the Overlake Hospital because he wasn't feeling well. Police will question Julia as to why she didn't bother to bring both of her children with her to the gas station, or why she didn't choose to stop at the dozens of nice houses and schools and churches that she and little M most definitely walked past while on their way to the Chevron gas station on their hour-long walk without Sky. When Julia feels the police aren't accepting of her blatant negligence and are just a bit too concerned with all the whys of what she did that morning, she then asks to speak with her lawyer and stops talking with Bellevue police completely. She does, though, interestingly, allow the police to continue searching her Redmond area apartment, as well as taking a closer look at the car she claims to have left Little Sky in. The following day, Monday, November 7th, the FBI had been notified of Sky's disappearance, and several witnesses had already come forward to confirm that they had in fact seen Julia's 1998 silver Acura Integra parked on the side of the road between 8 and 10 a.m., but not a single one of those people had noticed a small child left inside of it or anywhere around it, unfortunately. When police took a closer look at the car she had been borrowing from her brother, they had actually found no mechanical problems with it, as it apparently fired right up for the officers, and they also found it had at least two and a half gallons of gas left in the tank, meaning she also likely didn't run out of gas. There was more than enough gas to absolutely make it to the hospital, no problem, not to mention any of the many gas stations in that area. This particular model of Acura Integra was a three-door model, making one of the doors a suicide door where you have to, like, shut the back door before you shut the front door, you know, like one over the other. And police explain that because Julia somewhat parked on a hill too, a slight hill, it would have been pretty hard for a two-year-old to escape from his car seat, climb up front, and open the large door, which would have then opened against gravity going uphill. It would have been pretty hard for a two-year-old to do all that and then somehow successfully wander off into the area without leaving the door open or anyone ever seeing a child wander off in the street, or ever being seen by the many people who drove by that car during that pretty small window of time. It's just not likely, really, that Skye would have been able to leave the car by himself. On top of that, Skye was described as wearing a gray or green hooded sweatshirt, aqua and black colored sweatpants, and little white socks. He was not listed as wearing shoes, and nothing of his was located in the area during the foot search. Weather-wise, the day of Skye's disappearance had a high of 48 degrees Fahrenheit. However, at the time Skye would have been left inside the car around 8 in the morning, it would have been only about 35 degrees Fahrenheit, or 1.7 degrees Celsius. Which is pretty cold, if, especially when you consider his thin little clothes and that the car probably went pretty cold after sitting there for a while. As far as Skye even being in the car that morning... It was reported that the four-year-old sister, M, did confirm to police that her little brother was there with them in the car. However, with her just being four years old, they can't really hold or don't hold much credit to her claims. They believe she could have been easily coached or tricked and really can't be sure that Skye was even in the car at that point. At the same time, it's also very unfortunate because Julia herself had admitted to police that at least one of the car doors had been left unlocked, and it just so happened to be the one that was located right next to Baby Sky. 
So now it's virtually impossible to rule out that if Sky was in the car, someone, basically anyone, walking by could have noticed him sitting alone, simply opened the unlocked door, and took him away forever. Like I said before, on top of searching Julia's car, she also allowed police inside her Redmond area apartment to see the environment the children had been living in. While searching her home, police reportedly put her up in a local hotel for the time being, and police did reportedly confiscate some of Julia's trash, with her consent, of course, but never specified to the media, at least, as to what was actually found in the trash. I'm thinking they were looking for signs of diapers or anything that would show Skye had recently been in the home. The search also included the apartment complex's dumpsters and chatting with most of Julia's neighbors and the surrounding area for any signs of a missing toddler. Unfortunately, after canvassing Julia's neighbors, friends, and family, police would release information saying that they could really only confirm literally only one person outside of the family who had physically seen Little Sky within the weeks prior to his disappearance. However, that was almost three weeks before his disappearance, which would have been back on October 15th or like 16th. This neighbor, too, explained that it was not really unusual to go weeks without seeing them as Julia and the kids really had a tendency to stay inside most of the time. So finding no one that could confirm to police that Skye was seen alive and, much more recently, could actually mean that Skye might have gone missing up to three entire weeks before what Julia is telling them. I believe it's about this time that police on the back end are figuring out that Julia had then apparently left both of the children alone in her apartment for the entire time her and Solomon were in their 13-hour mediation in court. As it appears, she hadn't asked anyone to watch them for her, which would have at least confirmed both of the children were fine, at least two days prior to Skye being reported missing. So, Julia left a two- and a four-year-old alone in her apartment for at least 13 hours while she was at a custody hearing for said kids. Like, if you don't, if you don't believe there's something mentally wrong with this woman yet, you might you might start reconsidering because no, in no world would that ever be okay and is already a perfect example of why the children should have really been in the care of their father or at least with the state. In the meantime, Skye's four-year-old sister would thankfully be placed in protective custody for safekeeping, especially since police couldn't quite rule out Julia as a suspect, but would strategically also not publicly name her as a person of interest either. Solomon's church reportedly also made sure to hold a special prayer session for Sky's safe return as both of the children had attended the Sunday school there in years past. And this is all obviously pretty concerning to Bellevue police, on top of them finding no actual proof that Sky was even in the car that morning. Investigators then request that Julia take a lie detector test concerning all the events around her son's disappearance, but she actually refuses which in reality isn't wrong, yet is, of course, another red flag for Julia, obviously. Her attorney later clarifies that the test was refused because Julia was, quote, absolutely devastated over her child's disappearance and was really in absolutely no condition to be taking a polygraph test at this time. Truthfully, too, there's not much police can do about it except keep an eye on Julia and eliminate any other potential suspects in the meantime. The same day that Julia refused her lie detector test, Skye's father would happily, maybe happily isn't the right word, I guess, but 
he did agree to taking a polygraph with Bellevue police, to which, surprisingly, the results were said to be inconclusive. But Solomon confidently agreed to taking another polygraph whenever possible. His lawyer later explained on Nancy Grace that he believes Solomon's first polygraph test results were inconclusive because Solomon's heightened state of stress, being that it was only the day after his son had been reported missing and Solomon hadn't slept since he heard about the news of his son. Solomon had also reportedly allowed police to search his Kirkland area home in an attempt to further eliminate him as a suspect, and so far, Solomon was cooperating to the fullest degree, it seemed. During one of his very first news appearances, he had a direct message for the person who might be harboring his son, saying, quote, Please, sir or ma'am, if you have Sky." Please bring him to the police, fire department, or the hospital. Thank you for taking care of Sky this long, but please return him. Sky, he's a big kid, you know. He's he's two plus. Uh, if they're walking, Sky can come with them. Sky's not a, a even if he if he was uh, six months old, you can carry the carry the little guy, you know. Mm -hmm. Why would you leave him in the car in the cold? For hour and a half. Solomon did reportedly take his second polygraph test just two days following the first one, and that one was apparently taken down at Seattle's FBI offices, actually. However, the results of this second polygraph have never been revealed to the public. It was suggested on, I believe, the Trace Evidence podcast episode on this case that perhaps the reason Solomon's second test results were never made public were because if it was made public that Solomon had passed, the only other parent, Julia, would then be aware that she was basically suspect number one, and it seems like the police didn't really want to put any pressure on her just yet, considering she had already lawyered up defensively, and they were really hoping that by not pushing Julia into a corner, she would eventually cooperate with them. Still, though, an entire two days of searching and no one coming forward to say that Little Sky had been found safe, Bellevue police would then have to employ the use of a tip line, urging the general public to call if anyone at all has information on Little Sky's whereabouts. It was also found that someone had already anonymously made a Facebook page dedicating to finding Sky as well. And while all of that is sort of happening behind the scenes, local news reports are starting and interviews with Sky's father's side of the family had let the cat out of the bag that he and Julia happened to be square in the middle of a pretty bitter custody battle. And that paired with police saying that Julia is refusing to speak or take a polygraph really causes the public to begin scrutinizing Julia's social media profiles for any clues into what might have happened to Little Sky. And while people are searching for Julia online, it's also discovered that she has an active profile on the website known as SeekingArrangement.com, where she was advertising herself as a sugar baby who was looking for someone that could give her anywhere from three dollars to $5,000 a month including that she's a happy, single, loving Christian and mommy of two beautiful babies. The owner of that website later confirms on Nancy Grace that records show Julia's profile was created in the summer before Sky went missing, under the name JB, which are her initials, and in the state of Washington, which is where she lives. 
Her profile featured nine pictures of Julia and was reportedly accessed on October 26th, just a couple weeks before Skye's disappearance. So as you can tell, she took Solomon's orders to go out and work as a prostitute a little too seriously, I guess. I misunderstood the assignment. I misunderstood the assignment. Or maybe not, because it's, it seems to be working for her. Inevitably, though, once the public finds out about the divorce happening between Julia and Solomon, the court documents are then, of course, sought, and that's when a lot of information about Julia's supposed OCD starts to leak out. Some pretty upsetting rumors started as well when people began noticing that Julia's Facebook profile happened to show a very upsetting and disproportionate amount of pictures of her children. Nancy Grace noted 99 pictures of their daughter, M on Julia's profile. However, there was only one photo that had been uploaded of their son, Sky, which no doubt made people wonder why that would be. Why so many pictures of one child and not of the other? It's not illegal, of course, but odd nonetheless. Possibly the most wild discovery that began circulating as a rumor about how Julia's story concerning how Skye went missing happened to be painfully similar to the storyline in the latest Law and Order SVU episode at the time. This one where a mother had claimed her child was kidnapped out of the car while she was inside a convenience store purchasing diapers. On top of that, Law and Order was then coincidentally rumored to also be one of Julia's absolute favorite shows. Within days of the similarities being noticed, People Magazine would then issue a headline that legit read, Did a mom take her missing child story from Law and Order? The combination of these circulating details alone, like Julia's severe OCD, her Facebook slash sugar daddy website profile, and the SVU episode, were starting to paint Julia in a pretty negative light, and she wasn't helping herself any by not talking with the police, honestly. On November 9th, and three days into the search for Sky, the Bellevue police major, Mike Johnson, held a press conference for the local media and had also called into the Nancy Gray show trying to set some of these rumors straight. Uh, polygraph or not, we have questions for Julia we'd like to ask with her attorney present. So you would no longer describe her as being cooperative, I would imagine, if she won't talk to you. Right? I don't want to categorize her as cooperative or uncooperative. I just want to extend that invitation. Invitation. The question is, do we know more today than we did yesterday about what happened to him? And I would say, no, we don't. Do you know more what might not have happened to him? And how important is that? Uh, that that's just as important. I mean, every time we can cross, cross someone off the list as a, as a possible, you know, person that's involved in this, that's helpful. It narrows the scope. Sure, we'll talk about the SVU episode, and then I've got to get back upstairs, and I'll see you again in the morning. Um, I watched part of it last night. As I mentioned yesterday, some of our investigators have watched it. There are some similarities to what's happening here in the episode, and it's something that we're considering as part of the investigation. Is it the break we've been looking for? Certainly not, but it's it's intriguing, as as I'm sure you think it is. So, at this point, the, the issue of forcing her in to talk to us isn't even on the table. We're we're hoping Skye's out there alive and well, and we're we're conducting a missing person investigation, and and we feel Julia can help us with that, and we're hoping she'll come in and talk to us. Tell me what police are doing to verify her story, if you can. It's a great point, and one that many parents have uh, mentioned to us in regard to, you know, you make it work. If, if you have two kids, you need to, 
to abandon your vehicle, you make it work, and you take the kids with you. Uh, we get that. Um, to the caller's point, the indications are from the search and rescue dogs that, you know, are experts at this kind of thing, that Sky did not climb out of the car and walk away. There's no indication of that, and there's no scent to indicate that that happened. So, may, everyone with us, Major Mike Johnson also taking your calls. So, that says to me that you have actually used scent dogs, bloodhounds, right? That's correct. Uh, King County Search and Rescue, um, dozens of them literally were out there uh, Sunday afternoon and evening uh, canvassing that entire area looking for uh, signs of sky without any luck. Practically everywhere you go, at red lights, at toll booths, all along the highways, you see those cameras. Were there cameras in this stretch of road? There are cameras within the area. What we're trying to pin down right now actively is, is there some images that were captured between the time she left her apartment in Redmond Sunday morning and the time she arrived to that stretch of highway in Bellevue a short time later? Uh, we're canvassing the area. We're searching for every possible option for camera uh, footage that may have been captured along the route that morning, but so far we have nothing. Major, when she got to the gas station, did she speak to anyone? She did. She spoke to the attendant at the station, asked for a gas can. Uh, she was told that they didn't have one available to give her. And I think it was at about that time that her friend arrived that she had called uh, for help. Okay. Did she call from the Chevron telephone? Yes. I believe there was a pay phone in the area that she used to communicate with her friend who ultimately called us. Uh, for help. This is what I don't understand. Everybody with me, Major Mike Johnson out of Bellevue, she's driving uh, an Acura sports car. I heard that they had an Escalade back at the Target. That That's a, a very expensive Cadillac, Cadillac SUV. They can afford that, but they don't have cell phones, Major? What What's that all about? What mom told us, what Julia told us, was that she had a cell phone, but she left that at home along with her purse that morning. Well, wait a minute. Wasn't she taking the baby to the hospital, Major? Yes, that's what she told us. Well, then where's all the insurance information and the driver's license and all that? you got to show at the hospital. You just can't walk in the hospital. I, I can't anyway. I can't even catch a, catch a check without five kinds ID, much less go to a hospital. Well, it's questions like those that have us concerned about mom's story. You're exactly right. Yeah, like Nancy Grace couldn't cash a check. Okay. The following evening, Sky's father, Solomon, would actually appear on the Nancy Grace show himself, clarifying the circumstances of their divorce, Julia's OCD, and confirmed her love for the show Law & Order, claiming, quote, she would never miss an episode of Law & Order. It's her favorite show. Observe. Well, um, she has a, a pattern of 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 cleaning. Uh, she cannot stand dust or over the counters. So, uh, for her to uh, uh, be at ease, uh, she would need to wipe out uh, every surface uh, of the house, so so she wouldn't see any dust. Should I go okay, into what more is this business about her? Refusing to let you use the commode. Um, Jerry, you can tell her. Okay. Um, yes. Okay. Uh, 
She... I know that you are upset. I understand that she would not let you use the commode. What happened? I wasn't allowed to. I, I, I wasn't allowed to. But why? I just wasn't allowed to. Did she think that you would uh, leave germs? Was she that obsessed with cleaning? Um, well, I mean, she, she used it. That wasn't a problem. Um, but she just told me I couldn't use it. I also understand that she refused to store any food in the home. Why? Because uh, if we uh, ate at home, that means she would have to clean up uh, the whole entire area. Or, um, but she did that anyway. So it, it would just create more of a mess. And, and she didn't like messes. Her cleaning obsession, Solomon, did it extend to the children? Was she obsessed about them being clean as well? Yeah, uh, yeah, they, washing of the hands was, was, uh, very important. Uh, we had to wash our hands, uh, wh when, uh, we came from, uh, if we left, let's say we went to visit my mom, we would have to wash our hands, uh, at my mom's house, and then, and then when we come home, we have to wash our hands, so, uh, Wherever we left, we have to wash our hands. And when we came, came home, actually, when we came home, uh, you would have to go right in the shower. You'd have to take a shower when you got home from visiting? Yeah. And then, because it okay. would be nighttime, then, then we would just go, uh, go to sleep. Let me ask you this. How did she deal with baby Sky's poopy pants? Um, well, all the... Um, uh, see, we had the, since we live in, in the condo, uh, the, the, uh, garbage chute was on the same floor. So, uh, the, uh, if it was any garbage, it would go, go it would be, be thrown outside, uh, right away. You know, I know that she was an obsessive and compulsive cleaner at the house and would like only vacuum in straight lines. Is that true? Yes, that's absolutely true. What else would she do as far as keeping the house clean and keeping the children clean? Uh, she, she, she had a routine. Uh, it, would, it would go for uh, six to seven hours. So she would clean the whole house every day. It, does, it didn't matter if we use that, that uh, uh, area or not, but it, just, it has, had to be cleaned all the way through. So uh, starting from the uh, uh, kitchen, for to uh, um, all the c cupboards, all the places that were outside display. If we had a, a, a one or two picture frames, she had to, had to wipe that. Uh, uh, the mantle, the TV, uh, everything had to be wiped out, uh, out clean with just water and soap. Okay, now hold on. You mean plates that were on display? You'd have to, she'd have uh, to clean them? Yes. Okay, I can only imagine what happened in the bathroom. How did she clean the bathroom? Uh, exact same way. Every inch, every corner, uh, she would uh, um, Windex the, uh, the mirror uh, uh, before and after she would use the bathroom. Uh, 
Every corner would, would get clean with uh, water and soap. Okay, this is something I, I, I think I didn't understand it. You mean after she would go in and TT or urinate, she would Windex mm -hmm. the bathroom window before and after she'd use the bathroom? Uh, yes. Uh, so uh, after she, before and after, uh, she, she, she would clean the toilet, uh, and then she would uh, window the mirror because she has been inside that room. So for her to be at peace again, that room needs to get recleaned. Okay, Solomon Medwalla. By November 10th, two items of interest would surface into the investigation. Apparently, a little girl walking along the same street Julia had parked on found a toddler-sized shoe and notified police, sparking a chance that it may have been missed in the earlier search days. However, it wasn't too long before the shoe was discredited altogether because it was much too small for Skye, and he was reported not to be wearing shoes when he went missing. Now, I feel this little bit was pretty heavily underreported, as I haven't really seen much mention of this at all in other articles or other podcasts on this case. So let me just clue you guys in a little. A ransom note had apparently been sent to the newly created Facebook page for Sky in hopes of raising awareness about his disappearance. This ransom note was then reportedly this ransom note was then reportedly forwarded to the Bellevue Police Department and I'm just going to read it for you real quick. I'm going to read it exactly as it's typed and I want to say now that it seems pretty safe to assume that it wasn't written by someone whose native language is English. And that's okay. Here we go. To whom it may concern you can forward this email to the police as a new lead to the ongoing investigation, but the truth is that they are never going to be successful, not even in a thousand years. Your child is alive, but suffering from shock and unstable. If you sure you want your child back alive, then you must make available the sum of U.S. Or this offer will be off, and your of re-reuniting will be sure dead for life. I must warn you that if this note goes to public slash police, or you make any demand for a proof, and thereby failing to wire the money via Western Union money transfer within the next 24 hours, we will have your the fingers cut off one by one till it breathes to death. The Watcher. All right. I'm not really sure where to start, but till it breathes to death? What? I mean, they obviously meant bleeds, but like, come on, that's weird. And also, who specifies the sum of U.S. dollars? What did they think they were going to get if they didn't specify? Like, motherfucking Bitcoin? And also, will be sure dead for life as opposed to dead for like half-life? Honestly, I'm not a statement analysis whatsoever, but if the beginning of the ransom letter starts with, the truth is they are never going to be successful, not even a thousand years, I mean, it tells me right off the motherfucking bat that obviously the ransom efforts are pointless. Why would someone trying to get money up front say, but it's never going to be successful? Probably because they're full of absolute horseshit. Also, why say it's okay to forward this email to the police as a new lead and then later say, I must warn you that if this note goes to the public slash police, then you'll cut the fingers off one by one. Like, it's the stupidest ransom note I've ever fucking read. 
next to the Ramsey one, okay? This was a lot easier to read. Interestingly, this note happened to be very, very similar to another ransom note that had appeared in Bellevue's local news prior to Sky's disappearance concerning a mother who had went missing while out hiking during the previous year in 2010. The ransom note had been sent an entire year after she went missing and was also sent to the website her son had created for raising awareness about his mom's disappearance. Now, the subject line of that ransom note reads, quote, Patty is alive, though seem depressed lately, and need you to decide her fate by picking any of these below options. Option A. Do you miss her more than you would miss your hardly earned $250,000 if yes... Making available the money within the next 12 hours will have you reunited together well alive. Option B, you can forward this email to the police slash FBI to continue their fruitless investigations and be rest assured that you shall meet again in hell. Signed, The Keeper. (laughs) Now, the letter apparently also mentions sending one of the mom's fingers as proof that she's alive for a down payment of just $25,000, but I haven't exactly seen how that was written. I had only heard it mentioned. Either way, though, the FBI found that particular ransom note had originated from somewhere in Ghana and that it was likely a scam and therefore completely disregarded and then obviously not reported very much. Because the two ransom letters were so similar, I believe the authorities just did not give this second ransom note about Skye any second thought and really just discredited it completely. But I mean, I think I have an idea as to where that ransom note for Skye really came from. I mean, you know, we'll talk about it later. Regardless, though, the ransom note information goes nowhere and... The weekend following Skye's disappearance, the search would grow to the park's nearest Julia's apartments, which also employed the use of more tracking dogs and even more people on horseback. One park in particular that was searched was a 640-acre park known as Marymore, and at this point, the investigation had accumulated more than 300 tips, with over 150 persons actively searching for baby Skye. Sky's father, too, also hosted his own search party, along with the help of 30 or so of his church members that helped in the passing out of tons of flyers with Sky's picture to help spread the word. Solomon is practically speaking with the news, the radio, or another show almost every single day, trying to keep Sky's story out there in the news. After the search efforts in Marymore Park over the weekend, Solomon told the local news, quote, I'm very blessed that I live in Washington where people are very nice and very grateful to help me. I do believe that my son is coming back home. And watching Solomon remain so positive after all this time, having passed now, just honestly makes my heart ache watching these clips. In the meantime, everyone and their mothers are trying to get Skye's mom, Julia, to say anything about the day he went missing. But every single call that was apparently made to her attorney's office, was denied saying, quote, they will not comment on any ongoing investigations. By November 18th, Bellevue police began circulating photos of Julia that they had recovered on their surveillance videos from the days leading up to Skye's disappearance. Police also seem to have done their own social media research on Julia as well, 
and happen to notice that Julia is out here catfishing everybody and find that she looks incredibly different in her online profile pictures than how she did on the day she reported Sky missing. So these newly circulating photos of her caught from nearby surveillance cameras are supposed to help show more realistically what Julia actually looked like on the day Sky went missing versus how she would appear to look online. The Monday after Solomon's major appearances on Nancy Grace, Julia allegedly began speaking with a reporter from ABC named Neil Karlinski, but only through a series of emails. The emails from Julia read, quote, My former husband is a sadistic Muslim Pakistani. No one has any idea this is all too difficult. My attorney has forbid me from speaking about the ongoing investigation. My former husband's allegations are without merit. Solomon is deceptive. There was no way really to confirm that the person this reporter was emailing back and forth with was Julia at the time. However, the email being used did turn out to be the same one registered to Julia's very public sugar daddy profile and was also assumed to be her regularly accessed email account. Take a special and quick little side note here to remember that Julia seems to prefer only email communication at this time in her life. Very ironically, within just a couple weeks of making such hateful comments about her ex-husband to ABC News, Julia would basically turn around and contradict herself as she would then be requesting Solomon now have full custody of the children, at least four-year-old M, anyways. Which isn't that weird. One minute, he's a deceptive, sadistic Muslim, and the next, he should be taking care of your children? I mean, I guess he must not be that sadistic, right? Pretty wishy-washy, if you ask me. Following the news reports of those emails with Julia, the next day, like many days prior to that, Solomon would be seen on the news answering questions about his ex-wife's ranty emails. Um, you, mentioned, you mentioned something that you're Christian. Um, and how long, I mean, have you always been Christian? Have you been brought up Christian? No, um, um, in 2005, um, I, I, I got saved, mm -hmm. so, um, And the reason that it struck me, because, um, and this is kind of a, a, not a, not a great way to get into this, but, you know, we were talking a little bit about these emails that I think your estranged wife has sent to a news network, right. and, um, she says she doesn't say a lot in those emails, but it, what it seems to be kind of clear is her resentment for you. And um, one of the things that she said, I think she called you um, a, a sadistic Pakistani Muslim, and um, which sort of struck us as odd because you're not Muslim. Is that correct? Correct. She probably knows you're not Muslim. Correct. Do you know why she would say something like that? You know, she, she, she still uh, is just uh, lashing out in anger. And uh, once you do lots of, uh, you don't really think when you're, when you're angry. And uh, she's still be lashing out in anger. So. What did you think of the emails that she sent? If she did send them. Um, I was really surprised especially about that comment about the Pakistani Muslim. Uh, I am from Pakistan, mm -hmm. and uh, I mean, we, uh, we both went to church together, 
So uh, for her to relay that, um, I mean, we're, we're moving from what is the main reason mm -hmm. why we're on TV, you know, is to promote Sky's awareness. Mm -hmm. And um, for her to take a cheap shot to, at me, that's so unrelevant. I found it so interesting that she would spend her time in the email taking aim at you instead of spending more time talking about the fact that her son is missing. Did you find that interesting at all? Yeah. Um, as I said, I think she's, uh, she's just angry. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's like I am trying to, to use all my energy. And there's not too much, I might have to say. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I'm just trying to focus uh, on the prize, and the prize is getting Sky back home and trying to do anything that I can uh, to bring more, because it only takes one person. So, oh yeah, you know, I, yes, I did see, see, see that person. And that's all it takes. Mm -hmm. um, and, that's, and that's what I'm hoping for that person to come forward. By the 20th day of the search for Baby Sky, Bellevue Police had received over 1,000 calls to their tip line and employed the use of three different billboards in the area featuring pictures of Sky, hoping someone could recognize it. On December 5th of 2011, Sky's father, Solomon, was granted custody of his children, and their daughter, M was finally able to return to his home after being temporarily placed in foster care. I believe Julia would now only be allowed supervised visitations with at least four-year-old M. And I don't believe those visits happened very often, if at all, unfortunately, which is pretty upsetting to hear. At the very least, though, Solomon has one of his children back safe and in his arms after an entire year without her. However, two whole months would go by with still no word on baby Sky. For the 100th day marking his disappearance... Sky's father Solomon and his attorney, with the help of an organization named Search and Seek, held a candlelight vigil and a balloon release in the hopes of renewing the awareness of Sky's continuing disappearance. More than 60 people reportedly came out in absolutely shitty weather to support Solomon in his hope of Sky being returned home safely. Each person there in attendance was given a balloon and a pen to write a message of hope to little Sky and then simultaneously released them into the night skyline. The news came out and spoke with Solomon, who said, quote, We passed out over 5,500 posters from Oregon to Canada. For all of you volunteers, we sincerely appreciate everything you have done and will do until Sky is found. Solomon's attorney, who was also there, told reporters, quote, We accomplished what we wanted to do. Sky's attorney mentioned on a separate note that they had also so far sent out 360 letters to the East Area doctors inquiring if they had treated either one of the kids within the past year that Solomon hadn't been allowed to see, and all 360 had so far said no. So it would seem so far that there wasn't a lot of concrete evidence to prove that Sky was being taken to a doctor on a regular basis. It was next reported that Julia would fail to show up at the subsequent scheduled court hearing concerning the custody situation of the children. 
Though Julia's lawyer did apparently send a representative to the hearing, it still seems to have left a pretty nasty taste in the judge's mouth. And by March of 2012, Julia and Solomon's divorce had been finalized, and he had been awarded full custody of the kids, whilst Julia received abso-fucking-lutely no visitation rights at all. But Skye is still missing. Both a three-month and a six-month vigil would come and go, and before we know it, Skye would hypothetically be turning three years old, and we had yet to even hear one word from his mom, Julia. I had learned that through the process of divorcing Julia, attempting to find his son, and luckily was given the opportunity to be with his daughter, Solomon would inevitably begin to start struggling financially again, and he and little M would be forced to move back in with his mother in Kirkland. Luckily, they were eventually able to acquire housing through state resources that allowed him to get an apartment for himself and little M. Solomon was so obviously grateful, too. He was later recorded telling the news, quote, My daughter and I, we got to celebrate her birthday in a home where there's so much love. We don't have any bells and whistles, but we have a place where we're safe. We know when we come home, we can just be ourselves. And when you're homeless, you don't have that kind of grounding. And a home provides you that. Almost every day, she comes to me and says, I love our home. I love our little apartment. And I just thank God that we have this place that we can call our own and we can grow up with just the initial things. End quote. In honor of his son, though, Solomon did arrange for a second candlelight vigil open to the public to be held for the one-year mark of Skye's disappearance in Redmond, downtown Central Park. As Skye's one-year missing slowly crept back into the news reports, it became pretty obvious that even Solomon had grown more frustrated with Julia's lack of cooperation as the time had passed. He was quoted in saying, Why didn't she call for help? Why didn't she knock on a nearby door or take the child with her? I don't understand why she would leave the baby in the car. Why is Julia out here at 8.50 a.m., especially in Bellevue, when she lives all the way in Redmond? She's done something. I don't know what she's done, but I think her story is a bunch of crap. I think the whole story about her running out of gas is a bunch of baloney. When a person hides, doesn't do anything... It leads to question, okay, why isn't this person doing what they're supposed to do? She's definitely hiding something, end quote. Solomon's lawyer, Clay Terry, was even more blunt with it, though, saying, quote, I think Julia extinguished that child's life. I think this child passed from lack of care, more like negligently than intentionally. No mother would ever leave a child locked up in the car seat with the door open and take one child and leave the other to get gas. Sky was not in the car. That was an absolute lie. Not once has her family ever lifted a finger to help us find this child. If that's not an indication of wrongdoing, the circumstances in its totality indicate something bad has happened. End quote. And I gotta say, I absolutely freaking agree with everything that was just said. In later statements, the attorney had continued on to say that, quote, Julia concocted that hospital story, and when she realized no one believed it, she hired an attorney. She's a clean freak, and she probably bleached everything out. We're talking about the life of a two-year-old child whose mother is so vindictive and hateful, probably due to mental illness to some degree, that she is obsessed with the thought that she must prevent Solomon from having the children. She is not intelligent, and she definitely does not have what many would consider a creative side. I'm not saying that to be mean, but we are in the trenches trying to come up with a way to circumvent Julia's silence while her baby is missing. End quote. Damn. 
I'm glad. I'm just glad someone said it. You know, sometimes it's nice when lawyers don't sugarcoat it. When the lawyer was straight up asked why police haven't just brought Julia in and charged her with something, anything, Clay Terry answered, quote, they could bring her in, but if they did, they would charge her and charge her with, say, neglect. She would have to have her attorney provide her with every single document and piece of evidence that police have been gathering over the past 17 months. They don't want to do that, and we don't want them to do that. To give her all that information, it's just not worth it. We know she's the culprit. And it's almost like, from that point on, literally nothing, nothing has come out concerning Little Sky Metawalla. Not a damn thing since 2011. Not a hair, no fingers, no mystery children coming out of the woodworks, no little baby John Doe's, nothing. However, Julia herself can't manage to keep her own name out of the news because it seems like a lot of people continue to keep eyes on her. The next thing we hear from Julia is not that she's ready to talk about the day her baby went missing, but she's actually moved on, 100%, complete with a new life, a new husband, and even another baby. Records show Julia applied for a new marriage license on December 4th of 2014, three years following Skye's disappearance. She was found to have remarried a man that almost sounds perfect for a match made in hell together. The guy she married was obviously also looked into, and it was discovered that his criminal history is about as problematic as she is. It appears that Julia, again, would find herself in a pretty toxic relationship. This time, though, it's with someone that's actually physically abusive, not like the bullshit she probably tried to claim Solomon did. This guy Julia ended up marrying has quite a long criminal history to himself, including several charges of violence against police officers, various domestic assault charges from past relationships, and willful cruelty and multiple CPS cases with his own child who was thankfully taken away. And that was all before adding a slew of other charges that he and Julia would rack up in their short amount of time together. By the end of 2014, Julia would be claiming that she's three months pregnant when this guy starts putting hands on her. So she reportedly locked him out of the house. I believe the police were then called and an automatic protection order was then placed between the two as Julia appeared to have some visible bruising on her arms when police arrived. This second husband later pleads guilty to this domestic assault on Julia and the protection order continues. However, according to jail records, this guy doesn't give two fucks about a protection order, like many abusers, and he continued to call Julia from the county jail at least 70 times. I believe she also called him a ridiculous amount of times, so you can tell that that's going really well. By July 10th of 2015, Julia would be giving by July 10th of 2015, Julia would be welcoming her newest baby, reportedly giving birth to a boy that she names Elijah, which also happens to be Skye's middle name, and that is the only reason I am revealing it. I find the reuse of his name sort of bothersome, honestly, but we can talk about that later, as it's kind of just my opinion. Interestingly, though, it was reported that just within hours of Julia giving birth to this third child, a referral was made to the Washington State Child Protection Services, claiming that the baby was already at risk due to concerns about the mother's mental health situation. I'm not sure who submitted that initial referral, honestly, but it was revealed from a dependency petition concerning Julia's children. 
It was next on the four-year anniversary following Sky's disappearance in 2015 that Julia would officially be declared an unfit parent, per those CPS claims regarding this newest baby boy. Julia would have to appear in court for yet another series of juvenile dependency hearings, where rather than the father, it was Washington State attempting to remove this new child from her care based on the history of her neglecting prior children due to this obsessive-compulsive disorder. Apparently, since this child's birth, Julia had only met with CPS workers over the phone and had reportedly refused to undergo any new psychiatric evaluations, creating a concern for the safety of this new child. In their petition, CPS claimed, quote, The child has no parent, guardian, or custodian capable of adequately caring for the child, such that the child is in circumstances which constitute a danger of substantial damage to the child's psychological or physical development, citing the mother is unstable and has been diagnosed with severe obsessive-compulsive disorder, end quote. During one of the most recent conferences regarding the case in 2016, the new Bellevue police chief was a little more bold in speaking directly to Julia on press conferences concerning Skye. So let's start off right there. Is there anything new five years later that is going on in this case? What is the state of this investigation right now? It continues to be an open investigation. Um, we receive tips periodically, uh, which of course we follow to their logical conclusion. But unfortunately, nothing has led to locating Sky. And right now there's a lack of evidence. And there's no doubt that it, we are convinced that Julia Barakova holds the key to breaking the case open and, and locating her son. And again, I make the personal appeal to Ms. Barakova to please come forward and help us locate Sky. Um, whether Sky was a victim of a criminal act or not, we don't know. We don't know what happened. But we do know that he's been missing for five years. And our primary goal, our only goal at this point, is to locate him. He's been missing for five years, and we need to find him. If he is a victim of a criminal act, we also need to bring the offender to justice. However, again, we need to find him. And I just want to make one thing clear. You guys, is, is there any doubt in your mind that Julia Biryakova is lying about what she says happened the day that Sky Metawala disappeared, that she ran out of gas, left him there, and he was taken from the car on the side of the road? Her story is inconsistent with the evidence that we do have. Her statements to uh, police at the time um, that she reported Sky missing um, were not supported by the evidence and the facts as we know them. Um, there were, to say the least, m many of her statements were inconsistent with witness statements and, and others. Um, whether or not she's lying or not, um, I don't know. Um, however, I know that her statements have been very, very inconsistent. You know what? I'm going to go there, Brandy. Yeah, I do, I do think she was not telling the truth to our investigators. And for whatever the motivation was at the time, uh, we need to go back and, and find out what exactly happened. All right, Chief. Well, we appreciate you being candid with us this morning. The following year, Julia was found to have moved yet into another separate man's home, a man who in court documents was referred to as both a friend and mentor to Julia during her most recent child custody issues with her latest son. 
At one point, Julia had managed to acquire temporary custody of the baby before he was placed with Julia's mother, then custody issues going back and forth between them for a while, from what I understand. In regards to Skye, the end of 2017 would be his sixth anniversary missing, with Bellevue Police reporting that they had so far logged over 14,000 man-hours in the case, received over 2,500 tips, and it so far had cost the city $2 million in search efforts. But most unfortunately, there's still nothing to really show for it all. In 2018, age progressed photos of Sky were released to show what he would look like at age 7. Naturally, they do this to remind people that Sky at this point, is no longer the sweet little baby that we've been seeing in pictures for the last six years. He would now be growing into a handsome little boy. However, in May of 2018, Crime Watch Daily actually tried to get a hold of Julia, tried to get her talking, though she ironically opted for calling the police on those reporters instead, which was really interesting. Well, since Julia won't go and talk to the police, we decided to go to her. Julia's heading to the trunk of her car. Julia, Jason Matero with Crime Watch Daily. Why won't you cooperate with the police? Why won't you cooperate with the police with the investigation for Sky? We're doing a story on Sky's disappearance. Are you trying to hide something? Why won't you cooperate with the investigation, Julia? Sky was your son. It's been now almost six years. You won't talk to cops. She calls the cops on us. It's odd that a mom doesn't want to talk about their missing son. You call the cops, but yet you don't want to cooperate with the police. It appears from court documents that later that year, Julia would begin the process of divorcing her newest husband, who was fighting to have their son placed in foster care, apparently, rather than in custody with Julia or even himself. Julia was most recently seen in February of 2019 outside the courthouse during yet another custody hearing regarding her most recent son. There, a few local reporters were posted up waiting for her, just to remind her that no one has forgotten about Little Sky. You can watch old clips of this ambush on YouTube as she was rushed by reporters just begging for her to comment on Baby Sky, but yet again, completely avoided the questions, and her lawyer made it very clear that she would not be answering anything the reporters were asking. Soon after, a brief update was then put out by the Bellevue Police spokesperson, reporting that Julia still had not agreed to speak with the police and has continued to deny all their offers for interviews and polygraphs. When reporters asked the spokesperson why police don't just arrest Julia for child endangerment, spokesperson Seth Tyler said that their legal advice from prosecution suggests that it would be very difficult to prove child endangerment since the alleged child is missing. For what would have been Skye's 10th birthday on September 6th of 2019, his father Solomon wrote on Facebook, Tomorrow my son Sky Metawala turns 10 years old. I haven't touched his chubby cheeks for nine of those years. I have no idea where he is, but I believe he's alive. I have no evidence that he is with my Lord Jesus Christ, so I choose to believe he's out there loving life, playing football, basketball, doing his homework, reading his Bible, and helping any soul that he can get in contact. Thank you everyone who took the time to share his picture throughout the years. So many prayers have been said and heard by our Lord, but he has chosen not to reveal his whereabouts yet to us. I'm choosing to put my trust in Jesus that he will use every moment that I have lost with Sky for his glory. 
Happy birthday, my sweet baby boy. Daddy is waiting for you every day and not going to give up until you're back in my arms. I seriously, I find Solomon's faith and patience, for that matter, very, very inspirational, honestly. And I really do admire him for being such a strong and positive person while being in such a dark and frustrating position. And for as long as he has at that. In May of 2020, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children released an even newer age progressed photo of Skye to show what he would look like at 10 years old, which I believe is the most current one there is, though now he would technically be 12 years old. In June of 2021, Julia made news reports again when she was apparently accused of stealing some clothes from a Costco. All I can take from that is perhaps she's in need of a new sugar daddy, if we have any Captain Savahoes listening by chance. She was scheduled for a pre-trial hearing for those shoplifting charges in November of 2021, but I'm unaware of how those hearings went. More seriously, though, by that time, we had legit just passed Sky's 10th year missing, just last November 2021. That's also been 10 entire long years without answers for Sky's family, most importantly, Solomon. To this day, January 2022, Julia has still not spoken with police outside of reporting Sky missing. She has yet to take a polygraph as she has never once asked for help from the public or even inquired to the police about the circumstances of the search for her own child. Lack of information and cooperation from Julia have inevitably forced the Bellevue police and everyone else to consider that she's likely involved in Skye's disappearance on some level and to some degree. So if police even believe that she's responsible, why can't they at least charge her with something she's already done, like admitting to leaving baby Sky in the car alone, which in itself is actually a crime? You would think that that might put Julia in a position to talk, and yes, but Washington state prosecutors apparently explained that they wanted to do this right and they wanted to get it right the first time. But it's like, did they wait too long? Is there a statute of limitations regarding in child endangerment or abandonment or something? If so, it's most certainly passed because even a victim of child sexual abuse only has three years to report their abuser in the state of Washington. And three years is like nothing. Sky has been missing almost four times longer than that. So did someone drop the ball between then and now? Or did Julia get away with something because she loves some SVU and just knew to lawyer up and keep her mouth closed? What's even more interesting, too, as I'm researching this case, is that another, very similar, situation is happening with another little girl in Washington named Oakley Carlson, who apparently hasn't been seen physically since last year, but is only recently being reported missing. What is weird, though, is that Oakley's parents have already been arrested, yet Oakley still has yet to be found. These cases are occurring in different counties, which might make all the difference here, but I'm left just wondering why Julia has seemingly been untouchable for all these years. I mean, she's clearly not ever going to cooperate, 
I do understand no body, no case, but I just feel that at some level, in Skye's case, with all the circumstantial evidence that they have on Julia, that playing nice with her has inevitably allowed justice to possibly fall through the cracks. I mean, I really hope not. I really sincerely hope that with the 10th anniversary of his disappearance, Washington state prosecutors and police will kick it into overdrive and I'm hoping something big will happen here soon. With that being said, though, I mean, what really could have happened to Little Sky Metawalla if it wasn't Julia? Because there's really only three options. One, he was illegally adopted out and might still be alive, where in that case he would be just over 12 years old and likely in sixth grade if in public school here in America. Option number two, Baby Sky was legitimately abducted from the car by a stranger, in which that case the likelihood of him being alive is unfortunately really low, but not impossible. Or option three, this is just like the SVU episode and it's all a cover-up because Sky was no longer alive, which I personally think is the most likely of the three scenarios. However, as far as the adoption theory goes, Bellevue authorities do believe that Sky would still be somewhere within Washington state, whether alive or not. There's been no evidence that has surfaced to indicate that Skye has been taken out of the country either legally or illegally, and it's not believed that Julia left the state in the few days between the custody mediation and the day she reported Skye missing. It's also obvious that Julia and Solomon have both stayed here within the United States, and you'd think that if Skye was sent out somehow, there would be no reason for them to stay behind here all these years later. Skye's father, Solomon, has indicated that he would prefer to believe that Julia sent Skye back to Russia, possibly with her father, who sometimes visits from Ukraine. However, there's no paper trail to allude to this. To be fair, I suppose it's also possible to consider that Solomon could also somehow have smuggled Skye out of the country to his family back in Pakistan. However, still no evidence and his cooperation and consistent involvement in the search for his son would suggest that is also pretty unlikely. If Skye was truly abducted or someone really was truly sinister enough to take a sleeping child out of an unattended car and car seat without leaving any evidence behind and in such a small time frame is pretty low in my opinion. I, even I, will recognize evil lurks in every corner and at all times, but the chances of one of these types of people just happening to walk by this car parked on the side of this road in the early morning hours of a Sunday seem, again, pretty unlikely to me. Obviously, we won't ever be able to rule this out until it can be proven one way or another that Sky was even in the car that morning, which many people do not believe. Julia's story that morning just does not make a lot of sense, being that the Overlake Hospital was actually one of the farther hospitals from Julia's apartment. You'd think that if your child was sick enough to have to go to the hospital, you would just go to the nearest one. Truthfully, it's still absolutely possible that something happened to Skye prior to the day that he was reported missing. 
He technically could have gone missing up to two or more weeks before that date, being that no one outside the family can really confirm he was alive and well. It had been nearly a year since Solomon had seen either of his children, and the neighbors could only remember seeing Sky two weeks prior to his disappearance. Based on what Solomon has said about Julia's mental health and being that she had a habit of neglecting the children, whether it was intentionally or not, I think it's very possible that Skye could have been suffering from malnutrition if no one was around to make sure the children were fed regularly. I think it's also pretty possible that something could have accidentally happened to baby Skye during one of the times that Julia allegedly left the children alone. Possibly even during the 13 hours the two children were alone during the mediation with Solomon about custody. It would make sense to me that Julia would immediately call Solomon up and pull out of their agreement if she had come home to find Skye was no longer alive or possibly very injured. Now in this theory, possibly the SVU episode that aired later that night just happened to allow Julia a way to get herself out of this position. But then again, if SVU is her favorite show, you think she would have tried acting a little better or taking better notes or... Because pleading the fifth and never inquiring about your child after they had gone missing is about as damning as it can possibly get. If two plus two was four, right? And five plus five is ten. Okay. What the fuck is this? In a darker portion of this theory, and taking Solomon's claims from divorce papers into account... It's also a possibility that Julia might have intentionally hurt Skye, given the accusations that she had been complaining about having dreams of strangling him. Combine either one of these scenarios with the fact that Julia and Solomon were smack dab in the middle of a nasty custody battle, it's quite possible that Julia might have done something to simply retaliate against Solomon. But whether it was accidental or not, and assuming she is involved, still leads us to the same question. Where the heck could she have put in him? Where is baby Sky? you know? It would make the most sense that he's likely to be somewhere in the 20-minute drive between her Redmond apartment and the area of Bellevue that she left the car in. I looked back in the almanac and found that the sunrise on the morning of Skye's reported disappearance was 7.01 a.m., meaning that Julia could have been out hiding possible evidence in the very early morning hours when it was still pretty dark out and Skye's sister would have likely been sleeping in the car. I found that this year too, November 6th, was actually the day for daylight savings, so everyone in that area had set their clocks back one hour throughout the night too, probably making it feel even earlier for most people operating on that early Sunday morning. We have previously before on a Patreon case talked about Suzanne Smith and how some mothers who consciously choose to kill their children will, for whatever reason, sometimes have a tendency to place the remains back into a water source. Therefore, I think it would be beneficial to double-check any water sources located near the I-405 between Bellevue and Redmond, but that is a lot of places. And with all the time that has passed, Skye's hypothetical remains would be pretty hard to find. I would be curious to know if Julia's car was seen or videotaped, possibly, going over any bridges in the area. 
I did read that on the day of Sky's disappearance, a nearby 520 floating bridge was closed for some reason. And I only question this because I personally do not see this particular woman getting down on her hands and knees in the dirt to dispose of anything, considering her diagnosed OCD, I feel like that would be a pretty difficult activity for her. On the other hand, interestingly, Solomon's brother pointed out that Julia had once owned an apartment near the same neighborhood that the car was left parked in, so it's plausible that Skye could have been hidden in a place of familiarity somewhere near the apartment complex. And just quickly, I'm going to touch on that ransom note situation, given my thoughts on the case so far. I mean, personally, I would not put it past Julia, with what I know, to have something to do with the ransom note, honestly. Considering her only discussions with reporters were ever through email, and it would have been very easy for her to paraphrase from the other publicly released letter that had been displayed in the local news in the days just before Skye's disappearance. Bonus points, though, because Julia's first language was also not English, and she seems to have a tendency to get her inspiration from other very obvious sources. SVU. But who knows? The cops have never really talked about the ransom note besides mentioning that they just didn't find it credible in the least. And they just believed it was a copycat. And, well, you guys know who I think that copycat probably was. I also personally wonder who created the Facebook page for Sky that the ransom note was sent to. And if the police ever cared to trace the IP of that ransom note, honestly, given they so quickly disregarded it. I mean, let's just say it hypothetically just so happened to trace back to Julia. Well, now wouldn't that be some shit? I mean, I really, really hope the police did their computer work here and didn't just assume that this ransom note was from Ghana again. Hopefully they tried harder than the investigators in Casey Anthony's case because we all know how they fucked that one up. And if not, you need to totally listen to that episode on my Patreon because it's likely the reason she wasn't found guilty. Lastly, this one could definitely be construed as reaching, but it's just my opinion. But unless the name Elijah happens to already be some sort of family name, I feel like Julia naming her newest child after Skye is sort of a confirmation that she knows he's not coming home, which again reinforces all the circumstances mounting against her. This case is gut-wrenchingly similar to the nearby Chiron Horman case down in Oregon, where the boy went missing, the stepmom was the last person to see, years have passed, and nothing concrete has ever surfaced that would allow charges in either one of these cases, while the majority of us are just kind of watching and waiting in horror. As far as Sky goes, his father Solomon has consistently remained active, and open with the investigation and has also advocated for other missing children and their families as the time has passed. He's happily raising his daughter, who he says no longer has any memory of what happened the day her brother went missing. He tries to remain as positive and hopeful that he can that one day he will see his son alive again. 
Solomon's heart and faith just do not allow him to accept the alternatives. But he does find comfort in knowing that in the end of all of this, he will at least get to be with Sky in heaven one day. And I know it's been a long time now, but even now, if anyone listening does have legitimate information regarding Sky Metawala's disappearance, freaking please contact the Bellevue, Washington Police Department at 425-452-6917 or the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at 1-800-THE-LOST. Please make sure to take a second and check out Sky's age progress photo. It could literally just take one person seeing and recognizing something to break this case wide open. Before I go, I'm going to shout out to my lovely supporters over on Patreon. So a big, big thank you directly goes to Catherine S., Julie W., and April P. for joining and supporting yours truly, you guys. I hope you're all enjoying the bonus episodes I've created. This year, 2022, I plan to add the Madeline McCann case as well as the O.J. Simpson trial, both having to be probably at least four or five parts because of the amount of information that I would have to cover in those cases. So those interested can be on the lookout for those. Lastly, I'm just going to thank you, yeah you, for listening in today. Maybe if we all consciously manifest some justice for Sky. 2022 can be the year the case is closed. Fingers crossed. As always, remember to be safe. Lock those damn doors, you guys. Including those car doors and don't leave your kids inside the car by, for the love of God, Jesus. All right, you guys. Bye. And that was the tea. I hope you enjoyed my rendition of the story. And if so, please tell all your creepy ass friends about it. You can find every single source I used for the episode in its description. And if you'd like to support the podcast, please check out patreon.com slash ginger the true crime queen, where you can find even more of that killer content. <laughs>